So, my VPN has been playing up the last few days, and I'm going to admit, I'm not that prepared for this episode. Yeah, my dastardly plan has worked. Oh, but I've said too much. Say what? Only that, my dear doctor, I have finally pulled it off. By manipulating global politics and pushing certain governments to enact controls of what is and isn't allowable on the internet, I have forced you, through your own choices, to rely on me for content. You're right, that is dastardly. So you created the entire VPN industry in order to get me, and only me, reliant on you for content on this podcast. Yes. Interesting. Very interesting. Can I ask a question? Of course you can, my minion. Why? Why is this your end goal? But isn't it obvious? It's because I love the sound of my own voice. Intriguing. And when exactly did that realisation hit you? Well, just after you invited me to be your co-host. Oh dear. Oh yes. You set this up. You made me want this. But why? 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 Ah, Josh, you see, I am very lazy and would prefer someone to do the work for me. To quote Remington Steele, I work better in an advisory capacity. So I'm your Laura Holt? Worse. You're my Mildred Krebs. Is anyone other than you going to get that reference? No. Unfortunately, no. Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Addison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I am Josh Addison in Auckland, New Zealand. They are Dr. M. Denton in Zhuhai, China. And can I can I congratulate you, first of all, in the, the, the writing of that intro sketch, having me give the line, I finally pulled it off and not make a crude reference. I mean, that was that, that, that showed dedication to the craft and, and a level of maturity I would not have thought to credit you with. Yes, I must admit, I, I, I was, was very, very tempted to put a knob, ja- a knob jag in there, a mm. knob gag in there. I, oh, almost, knob I, jag almost gagged, I, I almost gagged on my knob jag. Mm. Whatever that means. Anyway, yeah. yes, I, yes, I, I pulled it off, Josh. I pulled it off without making it a pulling off reference. Good. Well, let's let's just say we've both pulled it off and move on. This week, this week, we, we it's it's a, it's just a regular old episode. It's not a what the conspiracy. It's not a conspiracy theory masterpiece theatre. Neither one of us is trying to hoodwink the other. We're just going to talk about a good old fashioned conspiracy and even one that even gets a bit false flaggy. It's this. This is this is classic podcaster's guide to the conspiracy this week. It is indeed because we are going all the way back to 1953, and actually technically slightly further back than that, and also and a more towards the future. But we're going to be we're going to be circling around mm. 1953, and we're going to be talking about a coup in Iran, which mm. often gets called the 1953 Iranian coup. But of course, the thing about the the coup in Iran is that there are questions as to who motivated or brought the coup about. So it kind of, it's unfair to call it an Iranian coup. It's more a coup in Iran. Mm. So I don't believe we have anything else to get out of the way at the start. Should we just dive straight into it? Indeed. 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 So 
1953 in Iran. The short, the short version of what we're going to be talking about today is that in 1953, Mohammad um, Mossadegh, the democratically elected prime minister of Iran, was overthrown in favour of the Shah, the Shah being that, that, that's Iranian royalty, basically. So it was a, it was a good old-fashioned coup d'etat. The military took over uh, in supporting supporting the Shah. But the motivation for it was, was basically the UK and the United States were were really behind it. Um, it wasn't a it wasn't a bloodless coup. Several sort of two or three hundred people died um, in fighting during the during the overthrow. And this coup is significant for being the first time that the United States used the CIA to overthrow a democratically elected government. That we know of. That, that we know. Definitely wasn't the last time they did it, but as far as we know, this is the first time they did it. Yeah. So this, this is the time where they have admitted to doing it. There are suspicions that maybe they were doing it beforehand, although actually not much beforehand. No, how, how CIA the CIA really around for it? Yeah. Yeah. But yes, there are questions. Maybe there are a few things that happened in the years prior where the CIA probably had their fingers in that pie. But this is the one that we know the CIA was involved in because it was acknowledged back in 2013, although it did take... Now, I have to to get my math here right. So 1953 would appear to be halfway through the last century. Mm -hmm. And 2013 would appear to be in the first... So, well, actually, in the second decade of mm. the 21st century. So, if we take halfway through one century and add it to halfway through the second decade of the next century, I think that means we're in the vicinity of X number of years after the event. Correct. Uh, where X equals 60. I think I think the declassifying of these documents was sort of because it was the 60th anniversary of the coup or something like that. But yeah, that wasn't... And although not, not as in the case of we're going to celebrate 60 years of yes. overthrowing an administration, here's some documents. It's more, no, technically the statute of limitations over keeping this stuff secret has expired so now this information needs to go into the public domain mm. and so yeah so that, that that was the so 60 years after the fact was the first time that the us officially sort of formally acknowledged their role <clears throat> Uh, 2017, apparently, the UK declassified some documents that was was around sort of the communications that had gone on beforehand, sort of showing how the UK had basically uh, come up with the idea of a coup and kind of went to the Americans and said, hey, can you help us do a coup? Which was a, a conversation that kind of went, I say, fellows, my, my American cousins, you know, those Iranians are causing us a bit of a spot of bother. Now, we're not saying that you should overthrow their democratically elected government. We are suggesting that maybe it's something you should seriously consider. I mean, just just putting it out there, maybe you might like to do, engage in a coup d'etat. I mean, maybe you would, but it really would help your friends over across the pond, and there might be some Something in it for you. Tap the nose to one side, since this is an audio medium and not a video. Mm. Yeah, yeah. We, we might get into the the details of the conversation between the UK and the US shortly, but um, something like that. Now, obviously, a, a coup a coup is conspiratorial by its very nature, right? It, it, you, you can't. Uh, it would be quite difficult to pull off a coup in a non-conspiratorial manner. Um, but the particular details of this one involve a bit of false flagginess in the actual execution of it. The operation uh, to, to overthrow the Iranian government was uh, called Operation Boot in the UK, 
possibly because they were giving Prime Minister Mossadegh the boot. I don't know. Um, and in America, it was called TP Ajax or Operation Ajax. Um, apparently, I have read that TP was the the, the two-letter country code that the CIA had assigned to Iran, and Ajax was reference to the Ajax brand cleaner because they were like cleaning communism out of Iran. Something. What the white TP? Are they referring to Iran as the Persians for some reason? I don't know. Capital's Tehran, isn't it? I don't, I don't know. Who knows? Maybe it's just some, some, some. Maybe it's not meant to stand for anything, and it's just their their secret little code. Who knows? Anyway, so I'm going to give you two guesses as to why the UK and the US would have wanted to foment a coup in Iran. What are your two guesses? All right, so I think they wanted control over moon cheese and they wanted access to Iran's superior dancers. Right, so you've gone for obscure and and um, weird, quite frankly. Um, you should have just gone for the, for the most obvious, basically. Oil and communism. Oil and communism. Well, two favourite if, if this were a what the conspiracy, I definitely have to press this button right now. But you do it ironically because there's no shock at all in finding out that. Um, so did you comedy. did you ever watch Robert Newman's com- comedy special, A History of Oil? I do not believe I did. No. So Robert Newman was and probably still is, but the was is important here for historical context. Was a '90s alternative comedian who, in the early 2000s, did a stand-up show called A History of Oil which was entirely powered by bicycles. So he would actually power the theatre he was in with people on bikes generating electricity to power the lights and things, which he acknowledged that when they came to filming the special caused a huge noise-related issue because you've got people on bicycles in the background pedaling all the time as you're trying to shout over the noise that they're creating. And History of Oil is a comic routine which basically goes through 100 years of the UK and the US interfering in the Middle East to maintain supremacy over their oil supply. So it's it's very biting political commentary. And it points out that what happened in the 1950s was also the kind of thing happening back in the 1930s and so because the Middle East has basically been a proving ground for different empires, first the British, then the Americans, to control a resource that they do not have at home. Mm. Yes, now this is probably a good point to to put in a bit of a disclaimer. Um, As you suggest, there's a lot of history in this region, going back well before 1953, going well before the 1900s. Um, there's there's all sorts of historical factors affecting everything in the lead up to this coup that we don't have the time or the expertise to go into. So just, but basically, every sentence we utter in this episode, you could add, but it's actually more complicated that onto the end of, and that would be a true statement. So I mean, this is this is going to be a less than one hour long podcast episode. So we're going to be painting with a fairly broad brush, but um, hopefully we get the get the key points right. Um, but possibly a few things to say about the history, though. So I mean, yeah, Iran had plenty of historical reasons to not like the United Kingdom very much. They had been interfering there for quite some time. Um, 
Now, in terms of the politics, uh, in 1949, there was an assassination attempt on the Shah, and that caused him to, to start to take a bit more of an interest in politics. And he used his his powers as, as the, the reigning monarch to set up a Senate of Iran, which he loaded with, with people sympathetic to him. Now, Mohammad Mossadegh was, was quite opposed to this. He thought, you know, politics should be for the people. There was... Uh, there, there was an expression that I think had been used for the other royalty in Europe and so on that they should what was it they should they should reign but not rule, I think it was. So they should yes stay out of government just just go go over there being royalty. Yes, yeah, basically be a symbolic monarchy so that mm. the people can look toward and appreciate. But actually, like the Queen of England in theory, not actually do anything. Although, as we've discovered in recent years, the Queen has a lot more political power than people ever thought she ought to have. Hmm. So um, he formed a coalition called the National Front. Which is an unfortunate name. Unfortunate given, yeah. And that would be its translation into English anyway. It possibly has different uh, connotations in the original language. But anyway, um, and so, so quite a large coalition which got enough power to basically make him prime minister following the assassination of the previous prime minister interestingly enough although i don't think there's anything directly related to the the coup around that but uh, the the fact that prime ministers are are being assassinated probably tells you things aren't as as stable as they necessarily could be and the long and the short of it is that basically he and the shah did not see eye to eye he thought the shah should stay out of politics the shah thought he very much should be involved. Which you can kind of understand the Shah going, well, I kind of feel that I shouldn't stay out of politics. Mm, yes, if I can if I can steer the, the, the mood of the country a bit more, maybe people won't keep trying to assassinate me. But anyway, so so back, back to oil. It all comes down to oil. Um, in 1951, and I believe this was sort of part of his, his, his platform in the, the formation of his coalition, Mossadegh, Wanted sort of campaigned on this platform that they were going to nationalise the Iranian oil industry. It was, you know, controlled largely by foreign interests, and they wanted it to be, you know, for for Iran for the people. So, 1951, his government uh, voted to nationalise the Iranian oil industry, in particular the British-controlled Anglo-Iranian. I think at the time it was called Anglo-Persian Oil Company, but then it's always abbreviated to AIOC. So. Anglo-Iranian oil company, which in the weird way that companies form and split up and and, and amalgamate and merge and what have you, is uh, an ancestor of what these days is BP, British Petroleum. Now, obviously, the British did not take well to the British-controlled Anglo-Iranian oil company being nationalised, and so they felt obliged to do something about it. So apparently, to begin with, uh, Prime Minister at the time was Clement Attlee, and he thought, considered uh, apparently considered just going in and taking the Abadan oil refinery by force, but then thought thought better of that and instead just set up a set up an embargo. There was the, the the Royal Navy was basically stopping any Iranian ships from from leaving Iran um, with oil on board. And on, on top of that, British agents within the country were were basically stirring up trouble and. Um, Life became increasingly difficult for Iran. They basically couldn't sell their oil to anyone, really, because of these embargoes. Um, and when things were bad for Iran, obviously that was that was bad for Mossadegh because he was kind of in charge, you know, kind of behind it all. But at least to begin with, he, he still had wide support. Now there was uh, the the Tudeh Party, 
I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, was the Communist Party in Iran. And they weren't massive fans of Prime Minister Mossadegh, but they were very much anti the Shah. So, so you know, your, your enemy's enemy is my friend sort of thing. So, so they were supporting Mossadegh for the time being, even though they didn't really see eye to eye with him. And I think that was the angle that the British used to try and get the uh, the Americans on board with them, because obviously 1953, we're, World War II's over, we're, we're into the Cold War now, and America's all about stamping out communism wherever they can find it. So, so that, con- that, that that conversation that you that you lovingly recreated alluded for to, us alluded yeah. to was probably more along the lines of, "I say, old chap, these Iranians are looking a mite communist. If you ask me, you might want to do something about that before anything gets worse." Well, yes, and this gets us into the kind of interesting thing because the British were interested in maintaining their control of the oil reserves. And they kind of knew that the Americans were petrified of communism. So rather than go, oh, actually, you might want some oil, they were going, well, these people here are getting in bed with communists, and you know what that means, America. And it goes, oh, my God, they're getting in bed with communists. We've got to shut this communism down. Mm. So it's quite a clever tactic by the British to go, hmm, we want this thing. And you want to stop that thing, so maybe we can kill two birds with one stone, and maybe we can also keep the oil, mm. which of course didn't happen. But that's not another matter entirely. Yeah, so you get this this sort of a crossover. There's the 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 theory, I guess, that um, this this nationalising the oil could be part of sort of a Soviet plot acting through this communist party. They're they're now influencing the country. Um, and so now we've talked about. I know we've talked about the Dulles plan which was kind of more conspiratorial than anything, but the Dulles brothers, um, John and Ellen, Ellen, yeah. were, were very much the, uh, uh, a, a, what would you call it, driving force, perhaps? They, they had a, oh, see, they, oh, see, I thought you could go dynamic duo. Not quite that much, no. They did make quite the duo, though, and they, they had a very strong influence, I think, on America's foreign policy um, for some time. So yes, John John Foster Dulles was Secretary of State at the time, and the British went to him with, with the story that you know Iran might be falling to the Soviets, their, their communists might be um, getting too much power, which during the Cold War was exactly the, the, the sort of thing that would get a reaction. Now, to begin with, when they first came to them, uh, Truman was president. And, and he, he was, was fighting a war. He was, yes. He was, he was busy with the, the Korean War. And so I don't think was interested in also getting involved in a coup in Iran at the same time. But 1953, Eisenhower became president, and they managed to convince him um, to, to, to go into cahoots with them to undertake a sort of a joint coup. Um, and the US got the CIA, which was then under Alan Dulles, the other Dulles brother, uh, got, got him onto it, basically. Now, the, I, I've, there did seem to be a little bit of disagreement among historians about exactly how much everything, each motivation came into it. Like, whether, whether it was, you know, how much of it was about oil, how much of it was about communism or what. I think the Americans, like some people have suggested, that the Americans knew that the Communist Party wasn't really big enough to, to be a threat to Iran. And as we will see, they... Um, they didn't end up being much, so so it's a little bit a little bit um un, a little bit vague and unclear because everything's a little bit vague and unclear when you're talking about politics in the Middle East, I think. But what we do know is that by 1950, and I believe by 1953, Churchill was prime minister again as well. 
I think. Can't remember yes, I think, I, I think I, I think he had had his yeah. his second surge. Mm. Yeah, so Truman t- so by this time Attlee was out, Churchill was in, Truman was out, Eisenhower was in, and between between the two of them they got down to business. Because yeah, the, the nationalization was in fifty one. By nineteen fifty three, uh, things things weren't going so well for Prime Minister Mossadegh anymore. Well, there were all those blockades and things stopping things from going into Iran, which was not making life pleasant for the the wealthy middle classes, who are of course the voters. Mm. Yeah, so the economy was not doing well. Politics were, were you know there, there was there was political upheaval, and as things got worse and worse for him, he started becoming more sort of autocratic trying to, um, to to stay, to hold on to power. Um, so there was another one of those, those good old assassination attempts against him. Um, and uh, after that, he, he immediately jailed dozens of his political opponents um, and then eventually issued a decree to dissolve parliament, giving him and his cabinet absolute power. Now, the Shah, apparently the, um, the CIA had gone to the Shah and said, hey, look, what, we, 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 we should do a coup. Come, you know, let, let's, let's organise a coup and we can put you back, you will kick out Mossadegh and put you back in charge of the country. Um, now, if, if you listen to the CIA, I don't know how, how accurate this is or not, but they, they basically paint the Shah as just a bit of a coward. He was just, he didn't, d- didn't have the guts for it and was too worried about, about you know, th- th- there was too much risk for him losing or anything and he was, he was too timid. Um, to go along with their plans for a coup. But um, once Mossadegh sort of <clears throat> gave himself absolute power, that, that, that was enough to convince the Shah, okay, let's, let's kick this guy out and put me back in, back in charge. So come August, August of 1953, Operation Ajax gets uh, into, into full swing. After, and Operation Boot. Mm, don't, don't forget the boot. So they, they actually had to take two shots at the coup, apparently. Um, on the 15th of August, the Shah issued a royal decree dismissing Mossadegh as Prime Minister <clears throat> and replacing him with General Fazlallah Zahedi, who obviously which was didn't, loyal to the yeah, Shah. Which didn't really work because didn't Mossadegh stick, simply no. went, oh, we're just going to arrest the so you you've got orders to replace me I've got orders to arrest you how's yeah, well, that gonna work out mm, yeah so the, the the colonel so general Zahedi was the one who'd been put in charge uh, oh, another yeah, sorry. Guy, a yeah. colonel from the army was sent to deliver the message and Masadic yeah had him arrested and his supporters took to the streets in a, in a sort of show of force and the coup did not appear to work out so the Shah immediately fled the country. Uh, went went straight to Baghdad and then then made his way over to Europe. Apparently, uh, General Zahedi, still claiming that he was the rightful prime minister, nevertheless went into hiding because uh, Mossadegh's supporters were were out on the streets. I mean, this 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 reminds me of what happened in Venezuela, where you had people go, "Oh no, I'm the president. No, I'm the president. Well, no, I'm the president, but I have to be in hiding now." Because the other president, who I claim isn't the president, actually appears to hold all the strings of power and might arrest me if I walk outside my door. But I am president. Mm. So four days later, on the 19th of August, they, they took another shot at it. And and this is where things begin to get a bit false flaggy. So a bunch of infiltrators who had been hired by the CIA basically 
started to organize a quote-unquote communist revolution. So they came out saying, hey, let's, let's, let's revolt, let's smash the state, and, and, and started bringing in the actual Communist Party members to, to get them um, on board with it. And um, basically ju- just started rioting, essentially. So this is uh, good, good old Wikipedia, gives a good summary of the events, as they, uh, as they put it. Uh, soon, the Tudor members took to the streets, attacking virtually any symbols of capitalism and looting private businesses and destroying shops. Much of southern Tehran's business district, including the bazaars, were vandalised. And with sudden mass public revulsion against this act, the next part of Zahedi's plan came into action. From the vandalised bazaars, a second group of paid infiltrators, this time posing as Shah supporters, organised angry crowds of common Iranians who were terrified about a communist revolution and sickened by the violence. And then the CIA apparently um, went and uh, hired, hired uh, the, the criminal criminal underclass, as it were, to really mess things up. Who did he? Who did he hire? Because I love these names. All right. So just let me uh, let me get ready for this. So I'll give you the the first name of one of the two biggest gangsters in the South Tehran ghetto, which would be Icy Ramadan. Icy Ramadan. Icy Ramadan. And Shaban Jafari, who is also known as Brainless Shaban. Icy Ramadan and Brainless Shaban. I would watch that TV show. Uh, unfortunately, in real life, they were they were basically gangsters from the South Tehran ghetto, and and yeah, basically chaos ensued. Now, from the sounds of things, this was kind of a case of of the CIA just sort of lighting the match and running away. It's, it, it sounds like they didn't need to do a lot of provocation to actually get this get this in, into full swing. And, and there are some there, there were some things I've read which basically suggest it kind of got out of their control and that they ended up not actually being too happy with how things turned out uh, because it got a bit out of hand. But um, nevertheless, they, they sort of kicked things off, but um, it, it, it didn't take much kicking off. Well, this is also, this is also historically why organisations like the CIA tried to deny ever being involved in the coup because they could plausibly say look, this situation was going to happen. Maybe there were some agents provocateur in Tehran at the time who nudged people in particular ways, but this was an avalanche that was going to occur nonetheless. So you can kind of do that argument. You go, well, it was going to happen, so we... We didn't really cause it, even though we actually caused it. Mm. So, so that was basically the plan. You, you, you spark uh, uh, again, quote unquote, communist revolution. You have have rioting and and mass lawlessness in the streets. That gives an excuse for Zahedi to come out in charge of the army and basically fight back against these communists, real or, or otherwise. Um, and this time they won, which again is sort of. That's one of the things people had had said. You know, the 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 Americans knew that the Iranian army was a considerably stronger fighting force than the the, the Communist Party in Iran, and that if it came to a fight, the army um, would would definitely win. Um, and and they certainly did. So they they took the streets. Um, Mossadegh himself apparently went on the run after a tank fired a shell into his house. Um, but fairly quickly saw which way the wind was blowing and gave himself up. And apparently, sort of, you know, some of his, his some of his supporters had said, you know, he should he should rally his people. He should he should sort of get them together and fight back. But he was like, he seemed to have decided that no, the the, the cause was lost. He didn't want any more bloodshed, so just turned himself in. 
And so by the end of the day, on the 19th, uh, General Zahedi and the army were in control of the government. So um, the Shah, who apparently sort of, upon being given the news, wept for joy at the sign that the people really loved him and, and actually wanted him back in power, happily returned to Iran um, and officially appointed General Zahedi as the prime minister. Uh, Masadik himself was tried and convicted and sentenced to death, although the Shah then overturned his death sentence and he instead did three years in prison and would then was kept under house arrest for the rest of his life. Um, and the coup at that stage was basically over. So I can only assume, once all that was sorted out and, and all the dust had settled, that everything was fine in Iran from then on and, and everyone lived happily ever after and Iran was and continues to be a, a lovely, conflict-free place in the world. And that's where we put the ending in and we'll talk to you in the bonus episode after this musical break. Or at least we would if that is how history actually turned out, because of course it turns out that the Shah himself was deposed in 1979 and Iran became what it's now known as, which is the Islamic Republic, which is under the control of the Ayatollahs, in this case in 1979, Ayatollah Khomeini. Mm. And basically one of the reasons which made this possible is a quite strong anti-US sentiment within Iran, basically because of how they interfered in the country during the coup. So it, it ended up being quite quite an own goal for the West. You sort of went from Mossadegh, who was not necessarily anti-West, but definitely pro-Iran and, and well, wanting yes, he to was a, He was interested in being part of the global Western order whilst also being a nationalist. Okay, look... Mm willing to be part of the Western world, what we aren't willing to be is a vassal state where you control our, our sovereignty and our resources. So we'll take those resources back and then in, interact with you as equals, something that the British couldn't stomach. No. So they went from him to the Shah, who was obviously pro-West. He was apparently quite quite sort of awed, by the might of the, um, the the power that the American uh, Empire, if that's the word, had, um, and then but then because a whole lot of people weren't very happy about um, the way America had been interfering in their country, when once the Shah finally got booted out, you ended up with an overtly anti-Western, um, anti uh, anti-Western, anti-U.S. government. Um, so essentially, if they'd um, if they hadn't interfered, things probably would have been better off for everyone all round. So that possibly leads something to the the whole uh, idea that maybe the CIA and the US didn't actually intend for things to go quite the way they did and weren't a hundred percent happy with the end result at the time. But once again, everything I've just said, everything we've both just said is actually a lot more complicated than what we've just said, but there's way too much uh, history and, 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 and what's the word nuance than either of us could a understand or b talk about in a single podcast episode. Well, yes. I mean, there's a lot of shades of gray there. So to go back to my comment before about how the CIA could plausibly claim, well, you know, the coup was going to happen whether or not we engaged in some provocative actions. Of course, the counter to that is, yeah, but the reason why Iran society was in kind of a state of peril 
was due to things like the blockades, which were being maintained by the British and the US. So if you hadn't been interfering with the political structure by engaging in military and trade embargoes, then Tehran would not have been in the situation it was when your agents provocateur did the things they did. So you can kind of see why that then leads to a situation where even though the Shah, who is pro-West, is in control, the actual Iranian people are going, yeah, but the only reason why we had a coup was because of Western interference. That seems like a bad idea leading towards people in Tehran going, we don't really like the West particularly much, which then allows something like the Islamic Republic to come into existence. Mm. So one last thing, just to just to emphasise the false flagginess of it, because we haven't had a decent false flag episode in a while, but there's um, so many of them out there. So I'm glad you, I'm, I'm glad you put episode in there because I was afraid you were going to say we haven't had a decent false flag oh, no. in quite there's, a while. There's a steady stream of them at all times, I think. But yes, yeah, so that I, I, there were two um, two agents, Roosevelt and Wilbur, who were isn't that um, played by Tom Stoppard, Ro- Roosevelt and Wilbur are in Tehran? Something like that sounds familiar, but I, I think you might have some of the. Uh, salient details slightly out of place, but that's okay. Um, in this case, Roosevelt and Wilbur, um, as, as representatives of the Eisenhower government, they 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 did a whole bunch of bribing for one thing. They bribed government officials, they bribed reporters, they bribed businessmen. Um, to uh, I think uh, we haven't touched on the propaganda side of things, but the the way things were reported in Britain and the US, and um, as well as reporting within Iran, I think that there was a lot of um, interference there. And, and obviously, they they bribed these um, those those gangsters, good old um, uh, icy Ramadan and brainless Shaban, uh, to to stir up a whole lot of trouble. Um, and so Roosevelt apparently. Um, has 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 was on the record as saying that they one one tactic they used was to bribe demonstrators to attack symbols of the Shah while chanting pro Mossadegh slogans, and so that that's basically your 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 classic false flag. They get people to attack symbols of the Shah, which uh, to, if if you were a monarchist, which there are a bunch were, Shah was kind of a symbol of of the country, and so you have these people saying they were pro Mossadegh. But attacking symbols of the Shah made people dislike and distrust Mossadegh. When in fact, the the only reason they were doing it is because they'd been bribed to by the CIA in the first place. So, got a classic, classic false flagginess there. Ah, oh, the CIA. What will they do next? I shudder to think. I I'd literally shudder to think. I I would rather not, quite frankly. And that's that's basically the the very brief. Um, version of the story of the 1953 coup in Iran. A false flag for the ages. Mm, Which kind of brings this episode to a close. So we do, of course, need to record a bonus episode. Any plans for what to talk about in the bonus episode? Well, we're going to be talking about a needle-wielding attacker, which is actually quite hard to say with speech disfluency, who attacks security guards and constant goers with drugs, according to one headline. And we probably should talk about Aotearoa's 9-11 moment, which happened earlier this week. Mm. Yes, so if you'd like to hear about either of those things, and, and, and who knows what else, quite frankly, I think last week we got into a... Uh, a fairly detailed dissertation on the 
uh, film Doppelganger starring Drew Barrymore, which I think I incorrectly said was 1996, when in fact it was 1993. I should obviously know better than that. But anyway, if you'd like to hear about any of that sort of stuff and you're a patron, then um, you're all set. If you're not a patron, you can just go to patreon.com and search for the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy and sign yourself up. Um, and if you don't want to be a patron and don't want to hear about any of those things, well, then you're, you're, everything is peaches and cream as well. So Peaches and cream. Peaches and cream. Mm. So... I believe, unless you have any closing remarks, we're all done. I'm just going to say peaches and cream again. Okay, well then I'll just just be a good old stickler for tradition and simply say goodbye. Peaches and cream. The podcaster's guide to the conspiracy is Josh Anderson and me, Dr. MRX Dentist. You can contact us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider supporting the podcast via our Patreon. And remember... They're coming to get you, Barbara.